Shalom. Welcome to Riv Kush, a CJN podcast featuring conversations with Jews of color discussing all things Jewish. So my guest today is Lulwa Hazum. What a fascinating person. So let me tell you a little backstory before I delve into her bio. I believe Lulwa, you reached out to me on Facebook. And when you did, of course, you know, I, I, I perused your page and I was like, she is super, super cool. And I think immediately I reached out to you and said, hey, I'd love to interview you for the podcast because it's a moment that I could not let pass because you are super cool. So let me tell you a bit about her and I'm going to read it out to you because it's a lot and it's all, all amazing. Iraqi American Jewish musician, writer, educator, activist, Hazan is the founder of an award-winning alternate alternative rock band, Iraqis in Pajamas, which combines Iraqi Jewish prayer with original lyrics and music, singing in English, Hebrew, and the Iraqi dialect of Judeo-Arabic. She's also the founder of the newly emerging vocals and piano duo Shaddai Chants. In 1990, at the age of 20, she pioneered the Jewish multiculturalism movement, bringing to the mainstream both awareness and celebration of global Jewish heritage. So for all of you who thought conversations around Jewish diversity is a new thing, clearly it is not a new thing. The first woman worldwide known to lead egalitarian Sephardi Mizrahi services as part of her groundbreaking work, because, you know, just in case you thought that she wasn't doing enough, as part of her groundbreaking work, Hazum implemented the first ever curriculum on Jewish communities across the globe. I gotta take a breath. <laughs> so, welcome. <laughs> And that, believe it or not, is the annotated biography, correct? Correct. When I send my business coach an update, when I send my business coach an update for the week, he typically gets back to me and says, I read it and then I took a nap. (laughs) You're amazing. This is such good work, such good work that you have done. So I want to, okay, so I want to cast back to 1990 uh, when you were 20 because I did allude to it because you know in this day and age when you're on social media you know people are like everybody's talking diversity but they're all talking diversity and multiculturalism like it's something that just popped up you know over the pandemic right right? like it's like they don't realize this work was being done decades and decades ago. So I want you to talk about this Jewish multiculturalism movement and and what led you to do that. Well, I grew up in a home that was Orthodox and followed the Iraqi Jewish traditions. And I grew up in the 70s and 80s. It was very rare back then to preserve Sephardic or Mizrahi heritage. We weren't calling ourselves Mizrahi back then. It was just kind of anyone who wasn't Ashkenazi was lumped into Sephardic, even though that was not accurate. And uh, so growing up, you know, I had, let's call it three different buckets of identity. So I was Middle Eastern, I was Jewish, and I was female. 
And I felt like a ball in one of those pinball machines that just got bounced around, you know, from one place to the other. So in the Jewish community, I was Middle Eastern and female. So I was dealing with racism and sexism in the women's community and the feminist community. I was Jewish and Middle Eastern. So I was dealing with anti-Semitism, which I actually call racism. And that's I'm going to bookmark that. But since people colloquially refer to it as anti-Semitism, I'm calling it that. And racism. Um, And then, like, in the general world, I was facing all of it. (laughs) Anti-Semitism, racism, and misogyny. Um, So, you know, it it was this... As a child, it was a very painful experience of wanting to belong and being a very heart-centered, passionate, devoted uh, person from a very young age. Uh, I'll just give one example, is that by the age of eight, I could lead the Iraqi Jewish prayers, not only singing um, or reading the the prayers, but doing it in the authentic Iraqi accent with the and the and the and the ta. So, you know, people... Yeah, what I can't do... (laughs) Yeah. So people were surprised because I have an American accent, you know, when I'm speaking English. Um, but then when I jump into Hebrew prayers, people tell me I sound like their grandmother from, you know, Iraq or Yemen or fill in the blank. And yet, because I was a girl, not only was I not invited to pray, but it was um, this attitude of, oh, God, wait, you know, we can't wait till she's 12 so we can shove her in the back behind the wall. And there was a lot of uh, arguments and negotiations, and finally it was tolerated, and I emphasize the word tolerated, and it was marginally tolerated, that I would lead the supplementary prayers because they didn't count, and I was very aware of why I was allowed to lead those, um, you know, up until I was 12, but Every now and then, a boy dressed in, what was it called, Ben Davis, back then it was kind of like, you know, the gangster look of the 70s, would walk into the synagogue. Um, You know, meanwhile, I'm all dressed for Shabbat. And I'd like to add here, side note, we live three miles away from the synagogue and we walked there and back. So I'm a six-year-old kid, seven-year-old kid, eight-year-old kid, walking there and back six miles every Shabbat, right? And um, and yet when this boy would walk in who barely could read Hebrew, didn't know anything about, you know, our heritage, they would literally pull me off the bima and shove this boy. And there would be men surrounding him, like panting after him, encouraging yeah. him, helping him, whereas wow. I was relegated to the sidelines and I could do a perfect delivery with the with the pronunciation like of the way it was back in the day. And it was completely right. devalued. And anyhow, so that's that's just a snippet. I mean, I could go on and on about just that segment of my life for hours. But let's fast forward to my my teenage years. By the time I was a teenager, by the time I was 14, I just stopped attending services. Still Orthodox, still practicing, but I was just like, you know, F this. I'm yeah. no. And um And I started dreaming then. I knew I was gonna do something. I didn't know what it would be. Back then I was thinking maybe I'll start like a Jewish multicultural synagogue. And my vision was always really inclusive. It wasn't, I'm going to start an Iraqi synagogue. It was like, I want a synagogue where we all come together and we're all celebrating all of the Jewish heritage from all over the world because it, honest to God, Rifka, never made sense to me. Why do you just want to know one prayer for the holiday or one song <laughs> yeah. for the holiday or one tradition for the holiday when right. there's like 50? I don't get 100%. it. 100%. I don't get 100%. it. 100%. And let's be yeah. clear, it's often only one yeah. particular type that we have to learn that they tell us to learn for the holidays, right? 
Well, what are, what are you referring to? Because I want to I want to understand it's like what the, you're saying. Because what like, I was saying well, is. Like you said, there's so many different traditions, so many different things that we can bring in. It's multiculturalism. And I know in my experience that that is never really exactly what you said. It's never really brought into the synagogue world. It is almost always the majority is Ashkenazi trope. Ashkenazi, Ashkenazi. Exactly. And I want to also the people add. sitting there may not be. Exactly. Thank you. Oh, God, I feel like jumping all over the map now because that brings up something. Um, That's cool. Let me Let's just jump. Side note for a minute. <laughs> okay. Okay. So we're now jumping to after I started doing this work. And back then, I would approach a Jewish leader, you know, say rabbi in a synagogue, and tell them that I offer these Jewish multicultural programs. And their response almost always will be, well, we don't have any Sephardim here, so, it, you know, it's it's not something they'd be interested in. And I would respond with a few different things. I'd say, first of all, I challenge you on that assumption because you don't know who you have in your congregation. If you're not already offering Jewish diversity, like, you know, a multicultural approach to the prayers or some kind of consciousness, like a base consciousness that we exist, no one's going to tell you. Exactly. So you may not be able to identify from somebody's face color alone. I'm a perfect example. My mom's actually, I mean, people can't see me, but my mom is a Jew by choice from Irish, Danish, and Welsh background. My dad's an Iraqi Jew. So, you know, I have light skin. Mm -hmm. I have dark hair, dark eyes, you know, Middle Eastern nose, but I have light skin. So everyone thinks I'm Ashkenazi. Like, I never stand out, but I am super not Ashkenazi. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I am super not Ashkenazi. You know, I mean, people always think it, there's there's an assumption, there's there's an arrogance that because I'm American, therefore I should know this, that, and the other things. Like, why don't you know my stuff? Why should I know exactly. your stuff? You know, the, fa- the, the fact that the first time when I was at Columbia University and I walked into the high holiday services, I was lost. I had no idea what was going on because I had never been to an Ashkenazi high holiday service in my life. And people were like so baffled by that. How can you not know? I'm like, well, do you know mine? No. So hi anyhow (laughs) and anyhow so so what i said to them i i made a couple points i said first of all you don't know because unless you make it a safe space for them to come forward they're not going to second of all are we jews or are we not because if we're not we need to like start separating and be clear Mm -hmm. about that because my my sensation is that all Jews are my family. Anything that happened anywhere in the Jewish world affects me personally. I personally care. I personally want to know. And guess what? By that point, I did know all the Ashkenazi stuff. So I was like, what makes you think that if someone's Ashkenazi, they're not going to be interested? And that's where I started saying things like, why would someone want to know one song for this holiday when they can know 12? Why would somebody want to be limited in their understanding of who or what Jews are? Jews typically spend so much time looking outside our community to make it more fun or interesting or diverse. I'm like, let's look inside. So that was actually one of the first programs I ever offered. Thank you. That was actually one of the first programs I ever offered. It was, um, what was it called? Um, Multiculturalism in our own backyard. And, and I was, I was pushing this idea really hard. I was like, why is it that Jews, Ashkenazi, light-skinned Jews are disproportionately at the forefront of diversity movements and yet completely oblivious or Mm -hmm. resistant or hostile when it comes to Jews of color? And I remember once, you know, I try, it's, 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 
hard to tell my story without without uh kind of sharing the particulars, but I try not to because I never want to shame anyone. And it's not about who a person is or what an organization is. It's about what the behavior was, right? So right. I was at um, I was at an event at Harvard, um, like my junior year, and it was about black Jewish relations. And the speaker's going on and on about how we have to build bridges and this and that, and also between Arabs and Jews, blah, blah. And I was just like, what? what? I raised my hand. I'm like, okay, hi. Um, I haven't heard anything about black Jews, right? And I haven't heard anything about Middle Eastern Jews. Why are you trying to artificially construct these bridges when we are the bridge? You don't have oh to work at gosh. it. Just, okay, just... hold on. Pause. Pause for the applause. Because <laughs> I'm telling you, I've never understood that, especially when it comes to black Jews. I'm like, why are you going to this person and that person? I'm sitting right here. And I'm part of the family. Let me tell you something. Yeah. Yeah. Let me tell you something. I, like, I want to just speak to how bad it was back then. So this is now, let's see, I was living in Berkeley. So it was like mid 90s, maybe late 90s. A friend and I, a friend of mine was a black Jewish woman. And she and I went to an event on black Jewish relations. Again, nothing about black Jews. And she like, you know, then spoke up. She's like, I'm a black Jewish woman. Where do you see me in this? And this guy starts talking about how Jews are white. And she's like, hi, can you look at my face, please? This is not a white face. And it was fascinating to me that moment because I was like, oh, my God. It's like, and I've seen this play out over and over again in different contexts. But people start off with an idea and it's so entrenched. Jews are white. Therefore, mm -hmm. when I'm telling you about my indigenous Middle Eastern family, you're trying to figure out how we got there from Poland. When a black Jewish woman is sitting and talking to you about how she is both black and Jewish, you start, you know, uh, Ashkenazi explaining to her that Jews are yeah. white. You know what I love what you said? What is that? <laughs> what I love what you said when they're looking at you and trying to figure out how did you get to Iraq from Poland? And I'm like, yeah, it's yeah. to hear those words. It is so ludicrous. It's more like, how did you get from Iraq to to Poland. Thank you. Because let me tell Thank you, you Thank really? You. Thank you. <laughs> My mom, listen, I want to tell you something. Another side note, like to me, um, I think, you know, and an influence of how fluid identity is, is, you know, my mom had light skin, uh, blue eyes, used to be blonde hair, became brown when she got older, but you know, super white chick, right? But she, yeah. <laughs> not only it's people, first of all, people assume she converted because of my dad. No, she started a quest when she was a child and she went to different churches at first and then she started studying world religions. And it was only when she found Judaism, she felt this profound sense of, ah, home wow. finally okay and so she converted on her own and and when she met my dad you know my dad had been affected by the intense racism in israel and he was trying to blend in and pass as ashkenazi right but every now and then he'd slip up like they're driving you know on a road trip or <laughs> slip something up, he starts coming yeah no i said that intentionally <laughs> yeah exactly so he'd be you know they'd be driving on some road trip and he'd start you know singing some iraqi jewish song and my mom be like what's that and he'd get all flustered and embarrassed oh nothing it's just from the old country because he was taught to be ashamed of it she'd go no that's beautiful sing it i'm feeling emotional even as i say this you know yeah. so it's my mom my mom pulled it out of my dad. So my sister is six years older than I am. And I'm telling you, I'm all over the map. I know. But that's okay. I'm loving this. I'm loving this. I'm loving this. Mm. 
My sister is six years older than I am. And when, when she was born, my dad sang to her French lullabies. Why French? Because the Iraqi Jews went to the French Alliance School. So they spoke French from a very young age. So he sang French lullabies when she went to sleep. By the time I was born six years later, my mom's influence had turned everything around and he was singing to me Judeo-Arabic songs or, you know, Hebrew, Iraqi Hebrew songs. And so I grew up with the Iraqi Jewish songs and prayers. It is just so in my cells. And again, I'm going to reference something I said before. Yet people assume that I learned it from tapes or something because how could somebody still be doing that? You know, I had a woman at the Israeli airport. I'm always, by the way, Uh um, you know, even when I'm with, I was with my Ashkenazi, you know, super light skinned boyfriend. He just went on through. Uh I got pulled to the side. I'm always pulled to the side because I have a long ass I hear you on that. (laughs) I hear you on that. Or they, they talked it, or they talked to my very obviously Ashkenazi Israeli partner they talk yeah. to him, but they're staring at me. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And and this one time, it was so bad. Like, you know, I'm I'm just kind of grilled. And, oh, I have to tell you something. Again, I'm all over the map. But, like, they'll, they'll, I know why they're asking me questions. What's, you know, why are you here? You know, my family, blah, blah. What are their names? And I know what they're going for. They want to hear, like, you know, Devora or something. Now, here's the thing. Yeah. All of my aunt's. All of my aunts, I had six aunts, they all, uh, they all they all have since transitioned, but they, they all had mm-hmm. Arabic names when they were born, Judeo-Arabic names, which right. is a combination of Hebrew and Arabic. It's, it's the Jewish dialect. And they all switched them to Hebrew. Why? Because they were constantly harassed. So what do I do at the airport? I switched them back. So they'd nice. ask me, you know, they're trying to, they're, yeah, they're trying to find out what my aunt's names are because they want to find out if I'm really Jewish or if I'm, you know, a Muslim terrorist or something. Let's trip, and so trip like, her well, up. Let's see if we can yeah, trip her up. Yeah. Yeah. So I go, well, let's see. There's, and I say it as heavy as I can. I go, there's Halwa, Laltaifa, you know, and I just kind of go on. Oh, and at some oh point God, they continue. Kinda, I love it. I love it. <laughs> Well, at some point they get it that I'm effing with them. You know, they're like, okay, okay, you know, because, oh, because very, I get yeah, really in them. Oh, very funny. Go, go, go. I know. Yell I know. No, I, get, I get really in their face, you know, and I'm like wearing Star of David necklace and I grew up Orthodox. So they start grilling me on religious stuff. And I'm like, let me school you. Let me school you on Judaism. Because you know they don't okay? know. Because so, you know they don't exactly. know. Exactly. Exactly. And so at some point they get really flustered and they're like, okay, okay, okay. But this one woman, this one like super blonde hair, blue eyed Ashkenazi woman says to me, why do you still have an Arabic name? I'm like, oh my God. I wanted to throttle her. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, like the, the heartbreak that I have of the destruction of our collective, and I'm feeling emotional, of our collective global Jewish heritage, and you have the nerve to ask me. Like, I made, when I was a child, everyone tried to give me a nickname, and I said, no, you will say my name in full, and mm-hmm. I made them practice. When they couldn't mm-hmm. say the ch and chazum, I'm like, okay, I'm going to teach you how to do it. You got to gargle. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But you're right. Anyhow. You're right. And it hurts. You're right, but it hurts. And then I think to myself, you know, you want to talk about names? You're holding on to names that have meaning, that have history, that say who we are as a global people. Yet I am now facing people who have changed their names to blend in with a society that has now to do with us. And you're standing in front of me and questioning my name. Yeah. You see what Thank I'm saying? You. Thank you. I want to tell you how bad it is. I'm named after my grandmother 
my aunts, her daughters, tried to get me to change my name to Lily because anyone that you meet that's my generation or above who's named Lily, they were named Lulua. And Lily oh. is the name of a toilet paper company in Israel. And I said, wait, hold on. You yes. want me to change my name to the name of a toilet paper company instead of keep your mother's name? That is how internalized and, and deep and, and effed up this stuff is. It is mind boggling and it just passes every day as normal. Wow. Yes. Yes. It does. And it's sad. It's actually beyond sad. Yeah. It's hurtful. Yeah. Beca- because it it leads to those internalized feelings of I'm not good enough. I don't want to be found out, you know, that your father exactly. had. Or I've heard exactly. stories about people who drop their kids off at Hebrew school, which is basically Ashkenazi based. And if they weren't Ashkenazi, yep. they'd say, remember, leave your Sephardi at the door. Leave your Mizrahi at the door. You know? Right. Well, this is how it starts because you you were asking me like to jump back to childhood. So um, Mm -hmm. my dad was a professor at McGill in Montreal. We lived in Montreal until I was five. And then he got sick. So you have a Canadian connection. I do. I do. And it was really funny because after Trump was elected, I was literally walking around circles, like literally just circles in one room. For three hours, I walked in circles around a bed. I'm serious. That is all I did. I just, I was like in a trance. And I was like, let's see, I am Middle Eastern and female and Jewish. This should be interesting in Trump land. And then all my friends start calling me. They're all worried about me. And I'm like, look, I live two hours from the Canadian border. I think I'll be okay. <laughs> but anyhow, so so we moved to California for a year. Where is Stanford Palo Alto? That's one hour from San Francisco. There were no Jewish, there were no Orthodox Jewish schools that were my sister's grade in Palo Alto at that time. So we moved to San Francisco. My dad commuted two hours a day. Why? So that we could go to an Orthodox Jewish school. Okay, what happened at that Orthodox Jewish school? Number one, every day we come home. My dad's like, what did you learn today? We learned about Hanukkah. We don't say Hanukkah. We say Hanukkah. What did you learn about Hanukkah? We play dreidels. We don't play dreidels. We, and, and I remember as a six-year-old, I'm like, why are we going to this school when we have to yeah. relearn everything when we get home? Like, seriously. And at the age of, yeah. And at the age of six, you know, you mentioned that thing about the Iraq to Poland, not Poland to Iraq. At the age of six, these rabbis were like so baffled. What Jews from Iraq? I said, okay, um, you know, Abraham and Sarah? They came from yeah. Mesopotamia. That's Iraq. And why am I explaining this to you, Rabbi, when I'm like a fourth of your size and you're a rabbi? Mm-hmm. Why am I a six-year-old Ooh. educating you? Oh, you gave me a chill because there is something that I say to people when I speak on, you know, the, the story of us, so to speak. And I say to them, I said, you know, all my life, when reading Torah, when reading the Chumash, whatever, I said... I will see reference to India. I will see reference to Ethiopia. To this Thank day, you. I still can't Thank find you. reference to Poland. Thank you! So what? Thank you! What is Thank going you. on? <laughs> Listen, I had this, I had my most popular workshop that I gave for like 20 years was Jews Afloat. And what it was, was I followed Jewish migration around the world from the days of Abraham and Sarah through the modern day. So it was in a context against a backdrop where people at best were talking about us and them. I'm like, no, there is no us, them. First we were here, then this happened, so we went here, then that happened, so we went there, period. We're like one tree, Mm -hmm. lots of different branches, we're all interconnected, and we have the same common thread of story, right? So... 
as I gave this presentation, it evolved over the years. I started getting more tech savvy. And the last iteration of it, which was now like the around 2008, 2009, was it was PowerPoint. And it, it, it starts off with a picture. Uh, sorry, it starts off with the word Jew. And I did that intentionally because people are uncomfortable with that word. And I challenged that. And then I asked people, okay, what just came to mind? And then I have pictures of like, you know, Jerry Seinfeld, bagels and cream cheese, that kind of thing. I'm like, you know, <laughs> chances are this is what came to mind. And people are like, yeah. And then I have yeah. a next slide is Jews from all over the world, every single kind. I'm like, this is actually what Jew means. And then I'm like, so how did we get to this disparity between what comes to mind and what actually is? And then I have this thing where like one line at a time, chronologically, I have the different Jewish communities come in, Right. So the, you know, it's the Ethiopian Jews are like 3000 years before and the, the like Chinese Jews are also about two, 3000 years before and the very last one. So it's like one at a time, one at a time. And then the very last one, which is 500 to 1000 years is Ashkenazim. And then I turn that into red. The Ashkenazim becomes red. And I said, okay, I want you to look at this list and the timeline, the bottom the last Jews to emerge on the scene are the Ashkenazim. And yet all of us up here who've been around for thousands of years are seen through, defined by, judged from the filter of the Ashkenazim who are the new kids on the block. Exactly. Why? And then I st and then I dive in from there wow. you know, into the whole presentation. Dang. That is so powerful because... One of the things that drives me crazy is when people discover <gasps> Jewish communities around the world. Thank you. And, you know, when we discovered, oh, my God, there's Ethiopian Jews. When we discover that there are Persian Jews. When we discover the Yemen. Like, they keep discovering these Jews. And I keep saying to right. people, they've right. been here forever and a day. You Just right. because you didn't see them, just because they weren't on your radar, doesn't mean they did not exist. Did I say right. that right? Well, see, yeah, that's, I think. Yes, that's, <laughs> okay. that's the interesting thing, because, you know, like at the end of the day, it's the Ashkenazim who were provincial. And and in being so provincial, they're, they're, they were they had so much ignorance. And, and it's it's such an ignorant thing to think that, you know, everything that's like that's like a manifestation of ignorance, you know, but that actually yes, leads to that actually leads to the core. There, there were like a few core principles of my work. One of them was at the time that I was, you know, coming of age and, you know, starting to do this work publicly, you had the Jewish community and I put Jewish in air quotes mm -hmm. and that was an Ashkenazi establishment. And if you were part of it, you, as you said, Rivka, a minute ago or a few minutes ago, you checked your identity at the doorstep in order to participate. So it's a different kind of racism. You're allowed to be here. We're not going to kick you out if you have dark skin, but you have to act like us. You got to yes. do things the way we do yes. things and you can't challenge our paradigm. Okay. So there was the Ashkenazi community and then there was the Sephardic separatist community, which was a very small group, very underfunded, very angry and not getting anywhere with the Ashkenazi establishment. And I was like, well, this won't do. And what I wanted to see was to bring the, not only Sephardim, but everybody, right? So, so I'm like, where I go, everyone comes with me, right? I wanted to bring all of that into the mainstream and challenge the paradigm, but do so in a way that didn't shame. So right. the Sephardic separatist, so the Sephardic separatist community back then, it's like, you know, you know, these horrible Ashkenazim and they're racist and, and, 
you know, this this opens a whole a whole uh, Pandora's box. But it's like I think that I was just thinking actually this morning when I was drinking my morning coffee, I was like, <laughs> I think there's like a difference between when something is a tool and when it becomes a weapon. So I think having right. consciousness about racism and dynamics of racism is a tool, but it can flip mm-hmm. at some point and become a weapon. And that 100%. doesn't take us to where we want to go, which is love. And right. so what I did was instead of shaming and pointing fingers. I I said, okay, look, like, especially when I give programs to Jewish educators, I say, look, you're a product of your own Jewish education. In your Mm -hmm. Jewish education, you learned about Jews from Poland and Germany. You learned about the traditions. You learned about the value. You developed an association, a heartfelt association. This is Jewish. You did not learn about Jews from other parts of the world. There's no way, no matter how heart-centered you are, no matter how interested you are, no matter how devoted you are that, yes, I want to do this, you cannot suddenly flip a switch and become an expert on Jews from Portugal or India or Yemen or Brazil. You can't, but you can right. do this. When, when you're talking about Jewish uh, practice or Jewish history, probably what you know is Jewish practice or history from Central and Eastern Europe. So say that. Because the core problem is that people think they already know. When you go to Jewish school, you think you've learned Jewish education. They don't know that they don't know. If you say, this is Jewish tradition from Central and Eastern Europe, you don't have to say more than that. That already leaves room, space. That already begs the question, well, what is Jewish tradition from somewhere else? Yes, When people have that curiosity, yeah. When people have that curiosity... They can go on their own journey and discover it. You don't have to be the one to provide it to them, right? Wow, that's and awesome. And another, thank you, and another core piece of my work, and it's interesting because if you fast forward 30 years, it makes sense that I ended up running a PR company for 10 years. Yeah. Back, you know, when I was, back when I was a teenager, you know, I'm like, wait, why do we say Jewish and Sephardic? I mean, we might as well pack it up and go home. We're shooting ourselves in the foot. And... And I realized people have an association with the word Jewish. Jewish feels Jewish, right? Sephardic feels yeah. extracurricular, other, out there, not me, not, <laughs> not, right? Extracurricular. And so, so every time that Sephardim will call something Sephardic, you know, like organizations in the Sephardic community, they were perpetuating the cycle. So what I did that was different was ah. I started creating programs about Jewish uh, history from blood, Jewish um, songs like Jewish high holiday songs from Yemen, Jewish, no, 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 from blah, blah, blah. And what I noticed that happened was this is now, this is circa 1990. So now we're coming back to your original question from half an hour ago. (laughs) 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 So I, um, what happened, I'm going to take a step back for a minute. I'm going to come right back to that point, but I want to take a step back just to, just to kind of get you here. So I went to Barnard which is the Women's College of Columbia University. And the reason that I went there was because I grew up as an Orthodox Jew in public schools. That was hell. Hell. I won't get into details, but I will give you just one example. There was a math teacher who hated Jews and scheduled every test, pop quiz. He would make stuff up just to flunk me. He would do it on the Jewish holiday or the day after. When I, you know, I was a very strong student. I loved learning. I came in to my teachers at the beginning of the year with a Jewish calendar with all of the Jewish holy days circled in red. I said, I need to be gone for these days for religious observance. I'm not allowed to study. Would you please give me assignments ahead of time so that I don't 
fall behind. He right. threw it in my face. It literally hit my face. He said, you want to take a vacation? That's your problem. This is wow. one small, small sliver of what I encountered. I actually wrote a huge article about it, but I just want to bookmark that. When wow. I went to Barnard, I was going to colleges. I was touring the East Coast colleges. When I went to Barnard, I'm getting, I'm getting emotional again. Um, we were touring the library. I'm really getting emotional. I might actually cry. This is how oh, big a deal it is. Oh. And I'm freaking like 52 now. Oh. Hold on. Things stay deep. Things stay deep, right? And people don't know, you know, the way people talk about Jews, like we run everything or whatever, like they don't know how hard it is, you know? So, so we were at the library. Yeah. And, um, and the tour guide goes, and here's where we have cassette tapes of all of the classes from the Jewish holidays. So if you miss a class, you can listen to this tape and catch up and, I grew up in San Francisco where people didn't even know what, you know, maybe they knew Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur mm-hmm. at best. They didn't know what the heck Sukkot, Simchat, yeah, any of that. No, yeah. no, just no. Maybe, you know, at, mostly they knew Passover and Hanukkah, right? That's it. Right. They had Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, Simchat, Torah. Every freaking wow. Jewish holiday was on a tape and I... I believe I burst into tears and I went to Barnard (laughs) and I went to Barnard and, um, you know, I have a lot to say on this too. Another, another side note, and then I'll get back to that. You know, um, you know what though, the the programs, something that seems to people listening seems like not that huge. Okay. So there are tapes. I don't think they, I, I, I hope people can understand the magnitude of that and how, how, I don't even have words like I would I would have been blown away myself. I would have been. You know, they may not understand the magnitude. I, I have an article called Merry Holidays, and it's it's part of my, mm-hmm. when when someone becomes a Patreon member, they have access to hundreds of articles and thousands of blog posts that I've written. Um, but, you know, they can also just uh, jump online. This one was published in the Jewish Journal. It's called Merry Holidays, and it gets it gets into the weeds about this. And I actually wrote my senior thesis. I, I Every single class that I took at Barnard was to prepare me because I knew what thesis I wanted to write. Oh, most people don't do theses in their undergraduate. Barnard no, is yeah. a very intense. Yeah, because okay, yeah, I'm like, thesis, and, <laughs> thesis. Yeah, no, yeah Barnard, Barnard, Barnard grads, <laughs> your senior year, you work on a thesis. And it, it was supposed oh, to be cool. 50 pages. Mine was 172 because I was really Dang. into it. Because, yeah, because what I did was I, okay, so so every class I took at Barnard was so that I could write my thesis, which was on public school accommodation of students who miss school for Holy Day observances. I was looking at to what extent is it constitutional, to what extent is it practical. And because I wanted to prove it was constitutional, I went out of my way to prove that it wasn't. And it was really groundbreaking. I, I, I developed my own everything. I went, you know, just came out of my life experience as a student. And I, mm. I chose three different school districts. One was in uh, Brooklyn. One was in Poughkeepsie. So the Brooklyn one um, was so diverse, there was no majority. The Poughkeepsie mm-hmm. one was super white Christian. Mm-hmm. And then the one in Long Island was almost entirely Jewish. And I looked at um, the different models of accommodation. And I talked to the students in the administration, which had really different perspectives. 
And, you know, and then I wrote about it and I, and, and I included my personal experience in the introduction, but it was very legal. Like I, I took law classes at Columbia University. They let you take first year law classes. And anyhow, the, the, where did I, like, I'm, let me try to find, find my way back. Oh, so that's how I ended up at Barnard. Okay. Wow. No, I, so, it's, that's a powerful, that was, it's a powerful story because I was just thinking, you know, in your public school with that teacher, we what we want what all we ask for is not a heck of a lot it's to be seen it's to be heard right so let's just keep it at those two things and yeah with the public school teacher you were seen and heard with such a negative in such in such a negative way that to be seen and heard and understood in such a positive way there are no words for that exactly let me tell you something in that article mary holiday's I wrote about my English teachers, my English teachers. I was a terrible writer when I got to high school. I had no idea what a bad writer I was until I started these English (laughs) classes. And they were phenomenal. They were such devoted teachers. And I basically lived at their feet for four years. And every single test they allowed me to take, they didn't even say the day after. They gave me like a day or two to catch my breath and then take the test. And they trusted me. And I was the squeakiest, cleanest kid. Like I didn't even cheat on homework. I was really adamant about learning <laughs> things myself. Cheat. How do you I cheat did on not. homework? <laughs> I did. Oh, people like do my homework for me. You know, do my homework for, I would oh, never do okay, that. I was okay. Like, Cause I'm like, I would. I I would ask for help. Like if I didn't understand something, I go to someone who could help me. I'm like, can you explain to me the thinking behind this, how does this work? But I want them to walk me through it so I could do it myself. I just wanted them to explain to me, like, I'm stuck. Help me get unstuck, right? Anyhow, but they trusted okay. me. And I went from my first grade was a D in my first essay. And I went from that to getting straight A pluses in their classes. I took the same two teachers over and over for four years. And I wrote in that in that um, article I published, Mary Holiday's, I wrote, it's no surprise that I became a writer. People walk through doors, not walls. And I used to love math. I was like a math whiz kid. I made my dad, my dad was a mathematician and, uh, you know, he did economics and stuff. But I'd make him Sunday morning. I'm like, give me like a hundred math problems to do. That was my idea of a good time. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. Not mine, but okay. (laughs) Right, right. But, but that math teacher destroyed me that I, I hated. And, and the science teacher was also anti-Semitic. And, and I hated math and science after that. Hated, hated. See? Anyhow, so back at Barnard. So, so I came to Barnard, you know, with this passion of, you know, there's a gazillion Orthodox Jews. And, of course, I freaked everyone out because while I was totally sneezed, like, you know, my sleeves were down to my yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. wrist and my skirt was packed. But I was yeah. punk rock. And nobody had seen that before. And I'd walk into Orthodox services Dang. and people were just like, what? Dang. <laughs> <laughs> no, I get that. I get that because I went through that same period. I wasn't Orthodox, but I had these freaking amazing, like what I call like my my bondage dressy skirt that went down to my ankles. Like I had that, but it was still very punky with the piercings and the like. <laughs> yeah, I had I had short spiked hair, you know, black leather jacket with yeah. chains, spray yeah. paint. But my black leather your, jacket. Your skirt, with... Tucked under your no, skirt. No, 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 my black. Doc Martens. 
No, no, no. My black leather jacket with chains and spray paint had stars of David all over the place. Like, yes. like did the chains, <laughs> the chains were these, I had these before, you know, subliminal, the rapper in Israel, he has these huge stars yeah, of David. Yeah, yeah. I was yep. doing that circa 1987, right? So they were Dang. like hanging on my black leather jacket. I never wore Doc Martens. I like the Victorian, you know, like lace-up boots. <laughs> oh, those are very cool, though. With the little heels. With any very detailed here. Yeah! Yeah, yeah, those are cool. <laughs> so I was always into those. Like, I had leather leather boots up to my knee, you know, and you had to crisscross me too. kind of thing. Oh, me yeah. too. In yeah. fact, I used to, yeah. I'd have to plan very carefully where I was going because if, if I was going to somebody's house and I'd have to take them off, it was like a no-no. Right. It was like right. a no-no. Right. Like, so I can't make it. And, yeah. And then, <laughs> that's, that's devotion right there. And then years later, they developed the ones with the zipper on the side. I'm like, oh, this is awesome. Like, it's still all lacy no, on the no, front. No, no, no. I'm a purist. I'm a purist. Can't really? do the zipper. Okay. Can't do the zipper. <laughs> that's funny. Oh, shoot. So, yeah, wow. I didn't I didn't know you were of like mine on that, on that punk yeah, front. Yeah, that's cool. yeah, yeah. Oh, 100%. Mm. Well, you know what? Just to digress a little bit, when I was in... Um, just entering high school here, I'm going to date myself. We're talking about Electric Company before we started uh, uh, airing. <laughs> <laughs> um, Deborah Harry was like, like the girl. And right. while she wasn't, you can't define, I wouldn't define her as um, punk or anything. I actually wouldn't because they were so light. But uh, the look of her, I wanted to look right. like that so badly. And I was like, right. how could I be blondie? So I was kind of like the black right. girl blondie for a while there. <laughs> but that's awesome. <laughs> that yeah. that look and that I I was I grew up around that era of you know like the Sid Vicious's Vicious's that sounds weird but very much that kind of um, influence in the background it was like that yeah. real hardcore kind and I like the look I like the look I'm well you so know it's interesting kind of I, I did after a while right and corporate but you know somebody interviewed mm-hmm. me from. Um, uh, I think it was Juice School interviewed me about one of my albums and, and was asking about why punk. And I had to kind of stop and think. And I, because I gravitated to, I, I only listened to classical music and I studied at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music playing flute and piano my whole childhood. And then I was 16 mm. and my best friend gave me a mixtape. She's like, it's time for you to become a teenager. And it was all like, <laughs> New, new wave, you know, punkish kind of music. And I yeah. fell in love. I mean, I feel like that's what my mom must have felt like when she found Judaism. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, my soul has come home. Oh, my God. You know, and I, yeah, and I was such a, like, good girl look until then. And then I'm, like, you yeah. know, shaving my hair and spikes oh, and, you know, I, all oh, that. Mm-hmm. I get it. <laughs> so, and, and I think what it is is, so I think people have a really weird relationship to anger i think anger is glorious it's beautiful it's the heart's expression that something is wrong here and and i see it as a manifestation of love and when anger is suppressed it that's when it becomes violent that's when it becomes dangerous but when it's expressed you know oh i like that express suppressed i gotta do something with that anyhow you know when it's expressed it's it's glorious you know, and what I saw, at least the the punk and punk light music I was listening to was people who were angry. And it's like I felt like there was something beautiful about it, though. It wasn't 
I did. It didn't feel to me wallowing in the anger, or maybe they were, but I wasn't. Like to me, it was like it was a it was doorway. Like, yeah, it was an get opening. It out, get it out. Get yeah, it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. It was yeah. an opening. It was like see the darkness. Look at the darkness. Hold up the darkness to the light and say, "This needs to change." Right? Mm-hmm. And people are so scared of anger. I had a bottle smashing range in my 20s. I was like, I am getting this out. This is not mine, you know? And I think that was my attraction to punk. And I think also that, you know, you were talking about the aesthetic. I There was something beautiful about, you know, when I was a little girl, I just spontaneously started pulling things out of garbage and making things out of them. And this was before, you know, recycling became hip and stuff. And I was just like, can I make toys out of garbage, you know? And there was something about punk that I think it's the same thing. You create beauty out of something that's trash. And my style back then was I would go to some boutique in, you know, the village in New York and I buy some Mm -hmm. really hoity-toity like silk blouse, right? Like Uh very kind of upper crust. And then I just wear like shredded tights and, you know, my boots. You know, it was kind of like this. Yeah, it was like it was like it. garbage and high end in one outfit, yep. you know? <laughs> <laughs> totally get it. You're you're speaking my language of my like early twenties, late teens. And I remember the when I dated my then became ex and I had this particular outfit on and I'll never forget he was just like horrified. <laughs> And I was yeah. like, I think it's creative and cool, you know. But exactly. now, let's yeah. swing to something else because talk about jumping all over the place. Okay. I don't want to. I don't want to not touch on music, your relationship yeah. with music. Okay. Yeah. Your let. Let's just like fire away. Okay, I want to finish though. I want to just come back to the thread we okay. said for like literally a minute. Oh yeah, because okay, so we did we bookmark stuff, didn't we? Right, right. <laughs> so how we got on, I, I have a freakish memory. So it's good because I also have like, my mom was ADHD and I, you know, I don't think I am ADHD, but I grew up with an ADHD mom. So I have seven conversations at once just by nature. Okay. <laughs> so, but, but my freakish memory allows me to come back. So so okay. what I was saying was I went to Barnard with my heart open, you know, for the Jewish community. And then it was super Ashkenazi. And the thing oh, yeah. is, the whole Jewish community was super Ashkenazi when I was growing up. But I was like on Iraq Island. You know, my home mm-hmm. was Iraq Island, right? right? But all of a sudden, I didn't have that. And I was just in this Ashkenazi ocean. And my... my um, my junior year, I think, uh, senior, I can't remember, year of college, there was a fetching session by the Jewish office. We didn't have Hillel then, there back then. And even the name of the fetching session was something I wanted to fetch about, which is why is everything Ashkenazi? So even this fetching session is a yeah, Yiddish word. Exactly. I was thinking about yeah. a Yiddish word. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And what I said was so basic. I said, you know, I would really like it if we had one of the prayers during services and, you know, kind of rotate for the Kiddush on Shabbat and have something that's Sephardic. And I was attacked. I was just like attacked. I won't get into the details, but it was awful. And I walked away going, I will never, ever again ask Ashkenazim permission to please please include us. And I started Student Organization of Jews from Iran and Arab Countries. I launched it first to Columbia, and then I continued it in Los Angeles. And then that led to numerous other organizations that I founded and led. And what was interesting was one of the ways I was attacked, one of the kind of pushbacks was, 
Well, Lulua, it's maybe you and one other person on campus who are Sephardic. So, you know, there's, I can't remember his exact words after that because I was livid, but, but it was yeah. something along the lines of, therefore, it's irrelevant, right? And I gave him the same response then that then became my response to the rabbis, you know, which we talked about before, which is, you know, you don't know that. And even if you're Ashkenazi, the fact that this doesn't interest you is a problem, you know, because mm-hmm. are we Jews or are we Jews? Exactly. And when I started SOJAC, when I started SOJAC, Student Organization of Jews from Iran Never Countries, all of a sudden, wouldn't you know it? There's all of these Sephardic and Mizrahi Jews who showed up out of nowhere who hadn't been exactly. going to anything. Exactly. Yeah. But not only did that happen, but because the language I used was, you know, Jewish X from Y, right? You know, Jewish, let's, mm-hmm. let's you know, do a Jewish Shabbat from, you know, Iran, whatever it was. Therefore, what? Ashkenazim showed up, and that had never happened. Sephardic was not sexy back then. No Ashkenazim went to anything Sephardic. Sephardic was dirty. It was yeah. backwards. It was barbaric. And they came to my programs. So I knew I was on to something. And that, 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 so I was talking about the two, like two of the core principles of my work that were revolutionary was one was I was like, you know, you don't need to be an expert on it, but identify you're really talking about Ashkenazi. Just say that. Just say Jewish from Central and Eastern Europe. Your job's done. Number mm-hmm. two is, you know, when I'm doing programs or when others for even Reza Haim are doing programs, let's call it Jewish from because otherwise people aren't going to relate. And the third prong of my work, and that really is kind of like it was just those three prongs over and over again in different ways, was this one time I was given a, a presentation to the uh, Women's Council of the Jewish Federation in Los Angeles. And it happened to fall between Purim and Pesach. I was burning the midnight oil. And what I had noticed was while Ashkenazim came to my events, you know, that, which is great, that's, a, that's an improvement, they kept saying right. you and us, you and us. And I'm like, how do I get them to say we? How do I get that? Exactly. Like it obsessed me. Yeah, you know, other other twenty one year olds were going out partying. I was like staying up all night. How do I get them to say we? <laughs> <laughs> and so this one presentation was between Purim and Pesach, and I was like, oh my god, I got it. So I start the presentation the next morning. I go, what holiday we just celebrate? Purim. Good. Where did Purim take place? Persia. Where's Persia today? Iran. How many of you know how Iranian Jews celebrate Purim? Dead silence. What holiday are we about to celebrate? Passover. Where Passover take place? Egypt. How many of you know how Egyptians you celebrate Passover? Dead silence. But that second question, heads started to nod. And then I said the words that I remember to this day, even though it was like freaking, what, 25, 30 years ago, and I used it in every single program. As we go story by story through the history and heritage of the Jewish people, we find that Judaism is rooted deeply in the Middle East and North Africa. Abraham and Sarah, Moses and Miriam, the first yeshivas, the Talmud, blah, blah, blah. So then, you know, I kind of make the point of, and yet we know little or nothing about that today. Why? Exactly. And at the end of this presentation, a woman raised her hand. She goes, what do we... And I could almost not hear the rest of her question because I'm like, she said we! She said we! She probably you're I I would bet too when she said we your face changed and she was probably like, why is she grinning like that I haven't even finished <laughs> what? but you did it yeah dang you and did it, it. that was a game changer that was a game changer yeah. 
You know, this the same thing happened, and, and I'm, I'm going to wrap this up because I know you want to talk about my music, but the same thing happened. The, the Jewish Multicultural Curriculum Project, I specifically launched it at a school that was super Ashkenazi. These kids were blonde. I mean, it was like as, you know, as, <laughs> as European as you get. Right, right. And, and I did it on purpose because I was on a, like, I wanted to, put to rest this question of, oh, well, we don't, we're only Ashkenazi here. This doesn't apply to us. I'm like, yes, it does. Let me show you. So when this blonde-haired, blue-eyed, freckle-faced, light-skinned kid raised her hand and Mm -hmm. said, wait, I'm confused. So when we were in Ethiopia, and again, I was Mm -hmm. like, I can pack it up and go home. It has been accomplished, right? That that is the goal, that this is all of us, all of us, all of us, all of us. Mm-hmm. Wow. You know, when you mention about when people say, but we're only Ashkenazi or there's only one or two, whatever, I always go to that phrase that I'll say in English, but a lot. I, I would like to think we all know it or a good portion of it, that saying, know before whom you stand. And I always think of that because it's like, know before whom you stand. And I interpret it as, don't assume that you are standing in front of who you think you are standing in front of. Right, right. Know before whom you stand. You know, it's, it's it's interesting because the Jewish Multicultural Curriculum Project was so powerful on so many levels. First of all, the kids loved it. I mean, I had kids complaining. It was a, it was a, you know, it was a reform synagogue. It was like two hours after uh public school or private school adkins complaining when it was thanksgiving because they couldn't go to hebrew school the 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 typical thing is kids don't want to go to hebrew school they wanted to come to my class because it was so awesome and they learned about jews everywhere and some other things that happened from that program like there were kids who in public school would educate their teachers like there was this one girl also super light skin you know light hair light eyes came to me um, the year after, like I was still teaching the same grade. She had graduated. Uh-huh. She came to me. She's like, hey, Lula, you know, in my class, we were learning about Ethiopia in, in my school and they didn't say anything about Jews. And I taught the whole class about Ethiopian snap, Jews. Snap, snap. You know, those are the kinds <laughs> yeah. of things. Yeah. It's like you want to cry. It's like, you know, oh, my God, they're now the emissaries. Yeah. You know, but but I'm going to leave you with this one. I know I keep saying I'll get to the music, but just I have to tell you this one story. So. There was this girl in the class, uh, my first year teaching at this school, who was a wallflower. I did not know her name halfway through the semester. I mean, this girl just was not involved at all. Never spoke up. Nothing. And then we got, so we, we, we remember that presentation I told you that I did, um, the Jews afloat, which followed Jewish migration. Right. So I created a curriculum that was just that, but it was spread out over time. So when Jews went here, we'd stop and study that community for one month. Okay. okay now we pick up and now we're moving over to where this community went. Now we're studying that wow. community. So when we got to Mizrahim and Sfardim, I created all these packets. So it was like, and, and I created groups, like groups of, you know, three or four kids. So who wants, you know, religious traditions from Yemen? Who wants, um, you know, the culture of Iranian Jews? Who wants, you know, and this wallflower girl, when I'm saying this, she starts slamming down the hands of everyone at her desk. She won't let them raise her hand, their hands. I'm like, okay, something weird's going on over there. Mm-hmm. And then I get to who wants Iraqi Jewish history? And she grabs their hands. She makes everyone at the table raise their hands. 
And when I'm going around and I'm distributing, yeah, when I'm going around and I'm distributing the packets and I come to that table and I'm, I hand, I start to hand the packet, Iraqi Jewish history. She launches herself out of the chair. Like she basically, how do I describe this? It's like, she's still in her chair, but she kind of throws herself yeah, out yeah, of the yeah, table yeah. into my face. Yeah. She, goes, she goes, I'll have you know that my father is 100% Iraqi. He grew up in Baghdad. And I was like, Damn, that was my point. Nobody would have known if we hadn't been studying Iraqi oh, Jews. Gosh, got and chill. I discovered I had, yeah, I had a survey at the end of that year and I had very detailed questions and I discovered that there were kids that they were Ashkenazi, but someone in their family married a black person who wasn't Jewish. But when they studied Ethiopian Jews, suddenly they didn't feel a schism. There was a kid in that class who was known as the trouble kid. Like you got a warning about that kid before you got him in your class that year. Mm. He was half Palestinian and half Ashkenazi. He was not a problem in my class. Why? Because we studied about Jews that looked like his Palestinian side and that spoke Arabic. There you so go. he found a bridge mm-hmm. between, I'm getting emotional again. He found a bridge between his two warring, you know, and his parents were divorced. He had these two warring sides. Right. No wonder he was a problem. He was acting out. Exactly. But he found a peace, uh, you know, a, an inner peace yes. when he learned about Mizrahim. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the key. And that's why the work you do is so important. Full stop. Thank you. Full stop. <laughs> so let's talk about music. I'm not going to sing because I can't sing. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> well, it I, sounds like you can from yeah. the clip, that little well, clip I just heard. Okay, you know, I liken my voice to, and I love this singer, and I wish it was as good as his, at least have the energy of a Joe Cocker. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of right around there. <laughs> I don't know who Joe Cocker is. <gasps> yeah! <laughs> okay, so your homework, and you can't cheat, is okay. to Google Joe yes, Cocker, ma'am. and but 60s okay. Joe Cocker, 60s Joe Cocker. Oh, okay. Okay, he's, okay. he's no longer with us. He's a British kind of soul, our soul singer, bluesy singer. He was at Woodstock, okay. too. He's very cool. And he had oh, cool. very interesting stage presence. So please, Joe Cocker. I will send you a couple of songs in particular I'd like you to hear. Okay. Yeah. Bring it. And then you'll say, oh, <laughs> then you go, that's how her voice sounds? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you had, you have a huge tie to music, clearly, right? Even yes. when you said yes. you play flute, you piano, you studied music, you, you, you founded an altern- alternative rock band called, I love this, I love that, Hiraki's in Pajamas. First, okay, before I even go any further, where'd you get that name from? So I went to Israel every year from age 18. All of my uh, relatives live there on my dad's side, which is, you know, that this is opening a whole other uh uh, Pandora's box, but that's the only family I grew up knowing. Oh. Um, and they all lived in Ramakan. And what happened was after they fled from Iraq in 1950, my grandfather, you know, after the Ma'abaro, the tents that they went through, uh, my grandfather got an apartment in Ramakan, which is where all the Iraqi Jews went. And then all of my aunts settled in like a one block radius. So that's like the whole family is there. Um, and 
So I would go stay in my, when my grandfather transitioned, he left the apartment to my family. And so that's where I'd stay whenever I go to Israel. And I went every year. I was, I was very, Mm -hmm. I felt very close ties to Israel. Ultimately I moved there for a number of years. Oh, anyhow. So yeah. So I, it was really funny because I was still Orthodox and all of my friends um, were, or most of my friends were Orthodox and they would all go to Jerusalem to study in the summer. And I go to Tel Aviv and club in the punk rock clubs. (laughs) And so I would, I would be in Tel Aviv, you know, dancing all night because dance also, it's, it's these things when you look back on my life, you can kind of see it foreshadowed, although I didn't know, you know. Um, so I'd be at these clubs and, and people would say to me, oh, you know, where, where are you living? And I'd say, Ramakan, they go, ah, Iraq in pajama mat, like Iraqis in pajamas. <gasps> I thought it was hilarious. So, so what the backstory <laughs> is there, there's like different backstories depending on, you know, where you're researching or who you're talking to. But the overall understanding is that it was derogatory. Um, there was a, like a habit of the Iraqi Jews in Israel, at least to get home from work and get into their pajamas. Now, it's okay, like I do that. that this was a thing, you know, exactly. Thank you. So, so that's the other thing is I've been a freelancer since like since since graduating college, you know, with one small, tiny exception, I have run my own show and I have basically lived in pajamas and mismatched slippers with my hair sticking out in seven directions. Right. So so Iraqis in pajamas was like, yes, that's me. You know, so, <laughs> but but I also just thought that phrase. Yeah, but I didn't care because I was like, that phrase is hilarious. Yep. That's just like if you just take that phrase, that is a hilarious is. phrase. And, and, you know, whether someone thinks something is derogatory or not, I thought it was really cool. Oh, you get home from work, you get in your pajamas. That sounds great to me. That's... <laughs> yeah, no, I <laughs> think it's, would you a catchy, want to in your work clothes? it's a catchy name. It's a catchy name. It's cool. The backstory is cool. Hey, Iraqis in pajamas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and so... And it was interesting because it became an issue. Like other people started getting very political about it. And I never meant it politically, but I was like, if I'm going to get political about it, what I have to say is that we need to keep a sense of humor that, you know, oh, anything about Iraq has to always be serious and be about war. Or like if someone's Hmm. done something derogatorily, I can only have an antagonistic relationship to it. You know, I think when you take that name and you're creating a band that is preserving and throwing in people's faces the very culture they denigrated and tried to stamp out. And, oh, look, it's not stamped yeah, out. Exactly. F you. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. You don't get more punk than that. Because it is kind of like, it is kind of like a, thankfully people can't see me, but it's kind of like a this. You know what I'm saying? To them. Right. Right? Exactly. Exactly. And exactly. for those who can't see me, just use your imagination. Uh, but that's exactly what it is. And you're taken back. You're yeah. saying that's our, I'm going to take what you think you're burning me with and I'm going to use it and I'm going to uplift Iraqis, Iraqi music, my stuff with yes. what you think yes. you're and, burning me with. And this goes back to the anger thing because it's playful. Do you know, there was a, there was a reporter who really, uh, I, I was quite amazed like I was I was almost like stunned he caught my essence in mm. a very short like sentence in an article um, I had written a book called consequence the subtitle is beyond resisting rape again there's a whole other thing but I'm just gonna say really quick for this point that I started hitting men who harassed me when I was in my 20s oh. and when I was doing my book tour he was in the audience during one of the book tours and he said that um, 
I looked confident, calm, and a tad amused while everyone was like freaking out that I was saying these things that they felt were really radical. And that is really me. It's like, it's like I will take something that's really messed up and mock it. Like I have a theater of the absurd humor, you know? And so it's like, it's not like I'm pretending that it's not oppressive how they're saying it. It's like, I'm bigger than you are. (laughs) So I'm going to, I'm going to have some fun with this, you know, and I'm going to throw it back in your face and you're not going to know what the F to do with it. And I'm going to laugh. Do you know what I mean? While I look at you all messed up and confused and like, uh. (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I like to turn things on their head. I like to. I like to turn things on their head in unexpected ways. You know, my boyfriend, like, what one of the things he loves about me is I have this sideways smile. It's like I've always got this kind of a, it's it's like everything amuses me. Yeah. So you have this constant, you have this constant amuse, like, look at these people. Life is so silly. Look at all of y'all taking yourselves all so seriously. Well, I'm just over here just smiling at you. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's cool. So I noticed, um, because I I noticed that you have in your book, which we'll touch on also, um, two pictures that struck me, because full confession, I have your book. I can't say I've read it. I can say I am reading it. (laughs) Okay. And the one I'm referring to is The Flying Camel. Okay. Because I immediately went and got it. When I... When I, you know, uh, researched you on your Facebook page. Uh, yeah. So anyways, so um, now I, I've lost my track. Okay, so you the two were pictures. One, two pictures. Yeah. O- I w- yeah. O- Ofra. Oh, no, right, right. going back. A pit. Yes. Right, right. And of right. course, Iowa. So those two struck right. me because yeah. huge fan yeah. of both. Um, yeah. Iowa, I don't know as well, but I'll tell you something. They came to Toronto, and I went and oh, nice. saw them. And nice. it was an intimate setting, and I was blown away. Blown yeah. away. I danced till yeah. I thought my feet would fall off. And I was just like, this, this is amazing. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. And, of course, I'm a fan of the Yemenite queen of music. And we right. know who I am referring to, Ofra. Yep. Like, I just... So to see that. So tell me a little bit about the context behind those pictures. Because things don't just happen sure. randomly. Or do they? Sure. <laughs> or sure. do they? So, you know? No. No. Um, I wrote an article called Ofra Haza and Me. It's actually, it's again in, in this uh-huh. Patreon uh, membership thing I have. People have access to all of it. And it it goes into detail. But I'll just give a little of the story. So... I had an assignment, I think maybe in high school, roll it, write about your role models or heroes. And I didn't have any. Like, I didn't see anybody who reflected me uh-huh. anywhere. And then Alfahaza came on the scene. And I was like, holy! Mm-hmm. <laughs> and exactly. And I became, I became obsessed with mm-hmm. meeting her. I, <gasps> I stalked random Yemenites. <laughs> In Israel, I'm like, take me to a leader. I go to Yemenite Pretty synagogues, much. Yemenite, Yemenite restaurants. Where is she? Where is she? Where's the queen? Where you know, is she? You know, you know let, me, let me 
tell you, when I ran my PR company, I got clients who had never been able to get into media. I got them into top tier media because I am like a pit bull who sinks my teeth in and I will Dang. not let go until I get what I'm going after. <laughs> so I was like, I need to meet this woman. And I kept getting like really close. And this is pre-internet, pre-cell phone. You know, I kept getting really close. The closest I got was I, I found that she had worked at a restaurant in New York, a Yemenite <laughs> restaurant. I went there, but I found out she had just quit a few months ago. Nobody knew where she went. And I was like, Come yeah! On. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So three, three years, I'm like doing everything I can in the United States and Israel to meet this woman. Then... The year after I graduated, my best friend, who is still at Barnard, she was younger than I was. Mm-hmm. Uh, she uh, she was she was doing like the pro-Israel advocacy then, which I had been doing then. She was doing it, and mm-hmm. she did this. Uh, she organized a concert, an Ofer Haza concert, <laughs> which I didn't know about. Mm-hmm. But I happened to be visiting. I went to visit her for like a few days, and the concert happened mm-hmm. to fall on that day, but it was sold out. And I was like, yeah, like again, foiled again. And then that the one of the people who was signed up got sick. And I was like, I did not poison her. I did not, nothing to do okay. with, I did not, hold on, hold I did on, not know that That's woman. her story and she's sticking to it. Okay. So, so I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. So we go to the concert and the seat was way in the back. Like all of the Columbia University students were like way in the back. And I, and so I start you know, I don't, I don't take things lying down. So I start just walking around. I start walking around and I'm just like, you know, I go down to the stage. I'm like, I'm like, there are two seats. And I just stand by these two seats that are empty and the show is about to start and the two seats are still empty. And I run and I grab my friend and she's like, but people may, you know, they may come and they may sit there. I'm like, if they do, we'll give them the seats. Come on. So we went running down there. We sat I'm in the freaking first row. I'm in the first row. Ofer Haza comes on. I was going crazy. My knee was bouncing up and down. I'm like, there she is! And she's like out of reach, right in front of my face. I mean, I was so close to her. Come she on. starts singing. She starts singing. It's like pearls are coming out of her mouth. She did not use her any voice. of the tech equipment. Oh her my voice. God. And her I voice. start Rivka looking at the stage. I'm like, that stage is low. And I'm really close to the stage. Okay. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no. And yes, yes. And then we get to intermission and I'm like, I should jump on the stage. I should jump on the no. stage and run back. <laughs> and then, I mean, I have, I have always had a very transparent face. Like I, I can't hide anything. And so I go over to the group of the students and one of my friends from the group can tell I'm something's going on and she's like what's up and I'm like well I'm just thinking that stage is really low and I've been trying to meet Ofahaza and I want to dive bomb the stage and she goes let's go and she <laughs> she like grabs wow. my hand I'm like really yeah she grabs my hand I'm like really she goes yes so we start running and and you know immediately it kicked and I was like, yeah. So I end up overpowering her. The secure, like meaning, what does that mean? She was in, she was, she was in front of me pulling me. And then, you know, my energy went through the roof and then I went racing past her. And then the security guards come storming down the aisle, yelling at us, you can't. And I 
freaking dive bomb the stage under the curtain. They caught her, Shut and I start the running back. Door. The, yeah, the, the security guards are now running after me, and they're now dive bombing the stage. I just start running around. I don't know where the heck I am. It was this huge stage. I end up in this room that's like another auditorium. I was very confused. I was like, did I end up back in the place that I came from? No, this is another room. And then I hear them going, where? Did you see this girl? Did you see this girl? I'm like, F. And then I just go running out of the room. I go running down the hall. And then um, and then I uh, run into this room. And all the eminent dancers are there from her troupe. And I, I just go up to this one guy. I go, hi, my name's Lulua Hazum. I run an organization called Student Organization for Jews from Iran and Arab countries. I've been trying to meet up for Haza for three years. I really want to talk to her. And he just looks at me very calmly, languidly, takes a drag on his cigarette and goes, ma? Which is what in Hebrew? <laughs> what? And I yeah. go, what? What? <laughs> like he did. Mom. So I'm like talking a million words a word, uh, word, a million uh, words a minute, and yeah, and he's he just like, anything. right? Mom. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and then I go, oh, and I just do the whole thing in Hebrew, and he just takes, he just looks at me, pauses, takes another drag of a cigarette, goes. Are you in a rush? In Hebrew, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I re- and I realize somehow I've made it in. Nobody's kicking me out and I go, "No." Oh. No. And then and then he invites me to sit down. So I sit down. And you know, they're all very relaxed and they ask me to tell my story more and I'm like, "Well, you know, I've been trying to meet her because, you know, I started this organization and I teach about Jews from the Middle East and North Africa and it's really important to me to get in the mainstream and she's like this, you know, total role model because she's a musician and she's, you know, teaching people Incredible. about music and blah blah blah." Yep. And 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 then they're like, "Okay, well her dressing room's over there. You can go say hello." And I was like, "Are you effing kidding me?" So 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 I go You're lucky to the you didn't pass room. out. I know. And miss your opportunity altogether. I know. <laughs> I know. So I'm shaking. I go to the dressing room. I'm shaking. And um and and the door opens and it, it's this woman who I guess is like her assistant or something. She's like, she can't talk to you right now. She's getting ready to go on. I'm like, okay. And then and then I kind of explained her the situation. She's like, okay, well, you can go talk to her manager. It's Betsa Lalaloni. And he's over on the front. Kind of like where I had come from, like on the stage mm-hmm. area. Like the curtains were down. So he was on the stage, right. but behind the curtains. Yeah. And I and I was like, okay. And then I was like, oh, God, I had this sinking feeling because the security guards were still looking for me. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so I'm like, and so then I'm like, okay, Lula, just act like you belong here. And I just start shouting random words in Hebrew to like various people as I pass by to just, you know, have <laughs> this an air is of belonging. hilarious. <laughs> And then I get, and then I get to the stage and Betsalel Aloni is there. And I had tried reaching him too, because I had, you know, stalked her and found out who her manager was. And so I told him my story. He thought it was the funniest thing. He just started laughing and laughing. And, and then he said, okay, well, um, you can come backstage after. And, and I was like, I just had this feeling like they're not going to let me backstage. And I was like, you know, I'm really concerned. They won't let me. He's like, no, 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 I'll make sure. And, and look, I, I dot my eyes and I cross my T's. I'm like, can I have your number? Here's my yeah, number. Something. You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yeah. For and real. I'm like, you know, give me your wallet yeah, please, so that please. you have to come <laughs> find me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, you know, please make sure, blah, blah. Okay. So then. I go and I sit down. I enjoy the rest of the show. I have my smile. I think my my face was hurting because I was smiling like, so much. Seriously. Yeah. And then at the end, 
Um, I immediately bolt over to the backstage door and security guard won't let me in. I'm like, that's how loud Loney said I can come in. You can't come in. But he said I can. You can't. Well, I need to see her. You can't. And I just would not let this man go. I was like right. in his face. I'm getting in. You got to get in. You got to go get Bessa. He said I could come in. Right? Finally, I just annoyed the crap out of him to the point that he went and talked to someone backstage. And then he's like, okay, come around this other back entrance. So I come around. They wouldn't let me in either. Again, I'm like really like aggressive. I'm not going to say no. You da, da, da. But I, I kept, I even tried sneaking in. <laughs> Again? <laughs> when some people, when some people came out, I tried sneaking past you. Know. Pre- Anyhow, I'm with finally. Them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Finally, finally, the security guard goes, okay. Um, like someone came to him and was like, okay, she's okay. So, and I brought my friends in with me. And, and so we have, I'm getting emotional. It was like, oh my God, it's such oh. a important moment for me you know um and and I introduced myself to her and I gave her my business card and she was really impressed with the work I was doing and then I told her about you know how I dive bomb the stage she thought it was hilarious she just starts laughing out loud (laughs) and then um we took two pictures one was just me and her and one was you know all my friends and her and um, I could full on cry right now. Seriously, you know and, what? Um, I think I'm actually gonna cry. <laughs> I, I, I continue. Yeah, and um, I had that picture of her. Like uh, when I, well, I mean, I, there's so much to say about the Jewish Multicultural Curriculum Project. But um, before the kids started in the in the beginning year, I I had pictures of places and faces, and I had ritual objects that represented Jews all over the world, and I also had. Like right above my desk, I had, I had these two pictures, you know, and um, and I taught the kids about her. And when, when she died, I was so distraught. Oh God! But you oh, know, even there, I, even there, because oh, I cried like a baby, and I didn't even have the connection yeah. you had. Yeah. Right. But you know, even there, because my understanding was that. She had AIDS that she contracted from her husband, but she didn't want to bring shame on the family, mm-hmm. and she died. And mm-hmm. even there, she was my role model because I wasn't speaking up about the domestic violence in my family. And I was like, I need to speak up. Wow. And I did in the book, you know. And it's it's a really hard, especially with a name like mine, i I'm not Debbie Goldberg. I can't go anonymous ever unless I change my name, which I won't because it's mine. <laughs> you but, think? <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, you're not. A, you're no Lily. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But you know, I've been finding ways because it's really important to me. How do you, how do you talk about trauma in a way that is compassionate and loving? for the people recognizing nobody would hurt someone else if they were not also traumatized. Mm-hmm. And that is unhealed trauma. When someone hurts someone else, that is unhealed trauma or mental illness, unhealed mental illness. Mm-hmm. It's something. No people who are healthy don't hurt other people. Exactly. You know, so how do you like like a core question of my music, actually pretty much almost all my songs has some variation mm-hmm. of how do you simultaneously confront like we were talking about the punk rock hold that darkness up Mm -hmm. to the light throw Mm -hmm. your bottles in your bottle smashing range shout out Mm -hmm. loud Mm -hmm. let it out Mm -hmm. you know talk about what happened and yet simultaneously not shame people and simultaneously love people 
How do you do that? That's that's the core. How, no, seriously. How do you my do work. that? Yeah. How I have do an answer you do at that? this? I have an answer at this point in my life. I do. I have an answer. Let me breathe. <laughs> I need to breathe. I think sometimes something that seems like a horrible thing that happened can be a gift, depending on how we approach it. So I was diagnosed with cancer in 2010, and I there's a whole story there, but I'll say the long and short of it is that I chose to see that as an opportunity to heal every level of my life. And I had already done profound healing. You know, it wasn't like I was someone walking around numb or, you know, not awake. Like I was very awake um, and I was pursuing my passions and speaking my mind and, you know, and the bottle smashing range was already like, you know, 10 years behind me kind of thing. And, Mm -hmm. um, but we always have another layer to heal. There's always a place we can shine the flashlight. There's always some cobwebs in some dark corner that we don't know about that we're not aware of. And so I considered surgery. I'm not against conventional medicine. I met with two mm-hmm. surgeons, but something in my gut kept telling me no. And I was very active on Twitter back then. And I posed and, and, and it was, you know, again, this is a whole other story. I, I had um, gone through debilitating chronic pain and I healed myself through dance. And I had a lot of followers who were, you know, dealing with chronic health issues. So they were very wise. Mm-hmm. Um, they often knew more than doctors knew. And so I posed to the Twitterverse, I said, you know, I kind of shared my story and I said, so I posed to you, Twitterverse, how do I self-heal from cancer? And a woman I did not know who had been following my blog um, wrote back the answers in the question, you self-heal. And I was like, Mm. okay, I am taking this and putting it, like I'm putting it into art. I took a poster board and markers and I wrote the question, how do I self-heal from cancer? And the I self-heal part, I put in a different color. And then I sat and I faced the wall where I put the poster and I played music, like had music playing and I just meditated on it. And then I go, oh, I got it. I don't address the cancer at all. I address healing. And through that, the cancer disappears. And so I set about looking at every aspect of my life and what can I do now to heal? So um, I radically altered my diet. I um, started juicing. I did some juice fast. I um, moved into a forest. I, I, a lot of things. I mean, I can, again, this is a whole story in of itself, but a pivotal thing is I returned to my lost love of music. I had lost my music. I hadn't done any music for 13 years. And through all of my dietary changes and, you know, um, supplements and et cetera, the nodules stopped growing. Like I cold stopped the growth of the nodules literally overnight. Um, I got an ultrasound every three to six months. I got lab work, you know, so I was tracking it. Right. Yes. And, um, it just, it just didn't grow, but didn't shrink. And I was like, you know what? I'm okay with that. (laughs) And then like five years into it, um, you know, again, I kept going deeper layer, deeper. Okay. I ultrasound didn't grow, didn't shrink. Okay. Body life, Lulua. What now? What do we need to heal now? I would ask myself that, what now? You know, pose that question and then Mm -hmm. the the answer comes, right? Okay, let's do this. And five years into the journey, the answer was get the F out of where I was living because I hated it and move to Seattle and start a band and don't ever lose your music again. The day after I moved to Seattle, I went to the waterfront to this um, gift store and I got a keychain that was a guitar and I put it on my, my keys on it. So that I would look at that guitar every single day and be like, 
Are you doing your music? 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 And I swore to myself, I will never, ever let my music go again. It was hard getting a band off the ground, but I did. And it was this band, Iraqis in Pajamas. And just a few months after, what was it? Three, four months after I started the bands, the nodules started shrinking for the first time. And so what ended up happening is because I chose to approach cancer, I need to get up and shake because this is really intense talking about. Hold on a minute. It's okay. Because I chose to approach cancer as an opportunity to heal myself, it took me on a journey and adventure. And one of the gifts was I had been this fighter my whole life. You know, fight the good fight, fight against injustice. And all of a sudden it was like, I'm not fighting anymore. Fighting is stress. I'm not doing stress. We don't do stress Hmm. now. We do peace. We do love. We do harmony. And there's different ways of approaching things. I did not want to. There's a lot of people who envision. I I can never remember which is the good and which is the bad, the white or the red blood cells, but they, they envision one of the blood cells attacking the other. They have a lot of that going on. I'm like, I don't want war in my body. I don't want to invite images yeah. of war in my body. But it was really radical, this idea of to send love to the place that, you know, had these nodules. Well, what if that makes it grow? <laughs> what if you send love and it grows? And it grows. But, and uh, you know, so it's frightening, right? But I ended up Discovering, you know, I'm coming back to the, this, this question. I ended up discovering that whatever it was, I, you know, I was in a hit and run head on car collision in 1997. That sent me down the rabbit hole of the medical system. I went from bed to worse. I was alternately bedridden, housebound, wheelchair bound. And then I discovered Dang. that I could reconceptualize dance and use it to heal myself. So I healed myself to the point that I could bike 30 miles at a shot without pain. Right. And then with the cancer, you know, I just radically changed my life. I live in the middle of a forest. You know, I'm in the most profound healing, nurturing relationship with a man I've ever been in in my life. This man is my soulmate. You know, I really struggled with men because I'm a really strong, really unique, really not scripted in any way, shape or form woman. And it was really Mm -hmm. hard with men, Um, you know. And so 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 many changes in my life and i feel peace i feel a deep deep peace and my whole thing all along you know with my family i i'm relentless i relentlessly tried to heal with different people now one person my mom i mean it was a, it was a violent chaotic really effed up family on so many levels my mom did the work you know um when I was 21, I stopped speaking to everyone for two years. And that was her wake-up call. And she got into therapy. She went to 12-step. Like my grandmother, her mother was a raging, violent alcoholic. Um, she started going to 12-step. And, you know, we got really, really close. You know, it was always it was always an intense, challenging relationship. There was always work to be done. But we both showed up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she couldn't do as much as I could. And I was okay with that. I'm like, I'll go 90. You go 10, I'll go 90. I'm cool with that. You know, I got the capacity, right? right? Just you do your right. part, I'll do mine. Wow. So that's that's my thing. I mean, look, Iraq decimated the Iraqi Jewish community. And I, I love everything Iraqi. I connect with it. So I think that there's a space, and this is really what my goal is to bring to my work, especially in these times when there's so much angst and anger. And there is a place, I, you know, again, I, I could get more into it, but because I've given it so much thought and I am in a place of peace in my life, there is a place where you can love and accept 
and also honor your own wounds and the impact. And I think that because I faced everything head on from a young age, like as a very young child, I noticed that adults carried around ghosts and and shadows, and I never wanted to do that. And so from a very young age, I got myself into therapy when I was 16. You know, my bottle smashing range was in my 20s. That was really radical. I mean, you know, neighbors kept calling police on me, and I was like, I'm not hiding. I'm not going inside. We all have rage. We all should be doing this. Get your own damn bottle smashing range or come to mine. You know, like, I was like, (laughs) we need to do this. And, And I was committed to healing myself above and beyond any shaming or ridiculing or being called, like, mentally ill. A bunch of people thought I was mentally ill, you know, and I was like, cool, whatever. I went through the streets yelling and singing and dancing like shit. You don't, excuse me. I don't S you don't do (laughs) stuff. You don't do. And, and so what happened was I transformed myself. I became the Mm -hmm. little girl. There's a picture of me when I'm little, I was like three years old, so full of light and life and just this, this unbridled joy. And I am that person, you know, that person got submerged and I, I brought her back to life and that is who I am now. And it's because I faced all the darkness. And I think that's the thing is that people keep avoiding the darkness. There is no avoiding it. It's going to eat you alive if you don't face it. You Mm -hmm. face it, you go through it. You ask for help. You do what you need to do. And when you do that, it doesn't control you. When you do that, you can talk about it. You can be open about it. You can sing about it, write about it, share with people about it. You can hold the people accountable who hurt you. You can hold the nation or state or whatever that hurt you accountable. You're not hiding it. You're not pretending it didn't happen. You're not sweeping it on the rug. But mm-hmm. that's not yours. It happened. It happened. So what are you going to do with it? That's the question. So that's been the core of my life. You know, cancer, chronic pain. My mom had dementia. She had a traumatic brain injury. Mm-hmm. I took care of her for 11 years. It was one of the most sacred, the most sacred thing of my life, actually. And so the question is, it happened. Now what? What are you going to do with it? And what happens if you infuse it with love? I have. Wow. Wow. You. <laughs> oh, I'm just like. You left the podcast You're speechless. <laughs> you. I felt every word you said. I felt every word you said. Thank you. And. I'm so, I'm so, I'm not just happy for you. I think it's a bigger emotion than that for where you sit today from what the snippets that I found out about you and where you are today and the work you did to get there. I'm just, I don't have the words, but I can tell you my heart feels full hearing what you just said. Thank you. And I hear it in your voice and it really touches me. Thank, thank you. Because we all have some darkness and we all struggle with how do I get, how do I get there? You know what I mean? And to hear you so clearly tell us your journey to where you sit today. Wow. Wow. Okay. All right. (laughs) This feels like, I'm going to tell you something, and we can talk about it offline, but this feels like a part two. Okay. I, you know, I, I want to, I want to speak with you more. I'd love Um, to. I feel like we've, I feel like just the surface has been scratched and I'll be a little selfish. I'll be a lot selfish. 
I want to I want to hear more from you for me. <laughs> I'd love to. That's it. I'd love to. That's it. So I mean, that's really all that's right. Now really I'm going to take that cleansing breath. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Sorry, you were saying. No, I just want to say that that's work is a weird word. I don't like the word work because it connotes a lot of things I don't mean. But that's my being now, my being with a capital B. I want mm-hmm. to share my journey. And look, it's really different. I used to have a power shoot and a PowerPoint, and I was all about persuading people. Like, how do I get them to say we? How do I get them to say we? Or how do I get this client into the media? How do I get this client into the media? Right? It was, I had a mission, I had agenda. I, I was persuading. I was like, okay. How do I chase down Ofra? Exactly. It was like, it was like, how do I take all these pieces and rearrange them so that it plays out in something that's, you know, higher, that's uplifted, that's, you know, and, and I've come to, I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, this is, this is a big one and I feel very vulnerable sharing it, but the medical system, so much to say about the Mm. medical system. And people assume that if you talk about the darkness in the medical system, you don't recognize the light. And that's not true. That's not true. But there is a lot Mm -hmm. of darkness in the medical system. I, as you can probably tell by now, I am fierce and I Mm -hmm. took care of my mom like a mother bear. You did not F with her. I intervened Mm -hmm. on so many levels, so many times. There are 10 times that I counted that she literally would have died if I hadn't been intervening and doing it as fiercely as I could, as I did. And yet, even with all that, throwing my whole being, everything I had at the situation, my mother died from medical negligence because there was a cluster F at the end that had Mm -hmm. so many things going on. Like there were so many things happening simultaneously that were all code red. Mm -hmm. It was beyond me. And Mm -hmm. I spent, that was three years ago. And I spent, thank you, and I spent most of the last three years beating myself up because I didn't rescue her. And I turned on myself, like, scorching, like, looking for what could I have done differently. And, And it was a very painful but a very healing lesson because I finally... I finally understood because every time I go through it, it's like, you know, I go through it with my therapist, right? I'd make the same choice again. And and I concluded finally, there was nothing I could do. It was bigger than me. But I have to tell you. Yeah, but you had to get there. What do you mean? Like you had to get to that conclusion. Right. Yourself. Right. You had but to I have to tell you to that conclusion. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. But I have to tell you something I'm very proud of. Because, again, we can get in this story another time in our part two or maybe part three. I don't know. But anyhow, (laughs) the level of things and the amount of things and the intense barrage of things that were going on, I swear to God that God was like, Mm -hmm. what does it effing take to get through this woman and end this person's life? This woman does not let it happen. She's like blocking us every... So it was like God had to like turn up to like turbo level. And, and it reminds me when I was a little girl, you know, I was, I was this like feminist out the box. I mean, I didn't need to study feminism. I just was when I was born. And because boys thought they were, you know, better or stronger or whatever than girls, I used to terrorize all the boys. And I, I never actually hit anyone, but I just go up to them into their face. I go, oh, 
you think you're stronger than girls, do you? And they'd be like, ah! Uh-huh. And they go running away. And then I chase them, right? <laughs> so there's all these boys uh-huh. that I terrorize. Okay, one day I was playing on the bars, um, you know, like girls often played on these. It was kind of like gymnastic stuff. So I was doing all these, you know, twirls and whatever on the bars. Yeah. All of a sudden, yeah, out of nowhere. This, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So all of a sudden, out of nowhere, seven boys pin me down. And I yell, it takes seven of you to get one of me. Oh, wow. Wow. So so I feel like it's the same thing. It's like, you know, I I was so fiercely protective of my mom that it took an S storm to finally overpower me. Yeah. And I couldn't handle it that I was overpowered because I am someone that never accepts impossible never i never accept that word no it's not impossible how how do we do it let's look at it this way how do we get there how do we get there how do i get them to say we how do we get there that's it that's Mm -hmm. it that's it that's it and my mom i'll end with this this is what my mom used to say to me all the time you kick it you stand on your head you turn it upside down. Like she go through this list of things that I do until I figure it out. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I, I, I poke at right. it. I'm like, I won't let it alone. I'm like, what about this way? What right. about this way? What, what about this? What about this? Yeah. And, but sometimes it's beyond our control. And let me just take a breath. So it was an extremely painful lesson but an extremely healing one because I am now in a place of peace. I don't anymore hold myself responsible for everything in the world. I used to take on everything. I mean, I used to joke that the police department should put me on payroll because if I thought anything that looked even mildly squirrely, (laughs) I was there. I was involved, (laughs) you know? And... And now it's like I've 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 come, you know, sometimes we have to go through really painful things and and I've come to this place of I'm I'm in a place of simultaneously accepting what is, allowing for the possibility of what can be, and breathing into it. And I think that it's, you know, it's I, I think that well, I, I can't say for anybody else. I can say for mm-hmm. me how I approach things now is I allow the support of the universe. Like I don't have to fix it all or do it all myself. And so I will face a situation and I'll say, okay, what is my heart's intention here? Like what is, what is causing my heart pain? What is my heart's desire? What's my heart's intention? And then I will pray. I will say, please guide me. And it's never, please guide me on how to get this. It's never a specific thing. It's like, please guide me on how to bring harmony into this relationship or how to feel at peace with this person or how, so it's a very kind of a open question. And then with that question in my heart, I dance, I go to the beach, I play music, and it comes, it evolves, it, it becomes the, the, it's not like God's like, oh, do this. It's like the thing becomes. Natural evolution, the natural yeah. conclusion. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Sounds like we're going to have another conversation Okay. one day for certain, for sure. Um, ah, thank you doesn't feel like enough, but thank you. Thank you so much. You have given me so much to think about. You gave me a great story to smile about, and maybe I'll get mm. brave and dive bomb a stage one day too. <laughs> um, you, ha- <laughs> you are absolutely amazing. 
Um, thank you so much. Thank you so thank much you. from here. And I do want to continue this conversation. Lulwa Hazum. Nahon? Nahon. Thank you, Rivka. Toda. Ashkorak. Ashkorak. I like that. Yeah. Hey, you might have to give me some lessons. Okay. All right. So. Okay. Until another day. Thank Sounds you. Good. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Riv Kush. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Music by Westside Gravy and I am Riv Kush. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can hear more at the cjn.ca slash Riv and support us by subscribing. If you want to support the CJN, join the CJN Circle. You get quarterly magazines, invitations to live events, and a weekly printable edition. Learn more at the cjn.ca slash circle. Thanks for listening.